Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first this week to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram uh, at Spartan Grown, all one word with no spaces. Um, and if you don't do an Instagram, you can find me, you can shoot me a message at, uh, is an email at spartangrown at gmail.com. And I'd be happy, happy to answer all of your growing questions. We're happy to have you back. Next up, Dr. MJ, first in the chat. Hey, it's a feather in my cap if ever there was one. I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I'm excited to be back for another show. I've got like my head screwed back on my shoulders this week. So um, sort of. Anyways, it'll be fun. That's all. It was nice uh, having Jordan on last week and you guys seemed like you were definitely well medicated. So uh, a lot of the chat really enjoyed that talk. So I don't know, maybe you should get to that headspace more yeah, often, maybe. I guess. Maybe I'm tired today, but I'm, I'm less medicated. Maybe I could work on that during the introduction. That sounds like a good plan. Next up, we've got Kyle Breeder. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Kyle Breeder. Uh, I typically specialize in feminized breeding. Uh, I do have regs on my website, too, which you can find at purebreeding.com. And uh, Facebook, it's Kyle Breeder. Instagram is pure underscore breeding. And uh, yeah, purebreeding.com. I think I already said that, but uh, glad to be here and see what we have to say tonight. Next up, we've got the American one. Hey, Jack panel and everyone in chat. I am the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. And uh, yeah, I'm always glad to be here and I'm looking forward to tonight. And uh, yeah, grow as love. Happy to have you back. And uh, Brandon and Noah said they may join us, but um, only maybe for a brief period of time. So uh, if you're wondering where they're at, that is where. And I'm not sure where Matthew Gates is right now. So he's a uh, I don't know if he sent something in the chat or not. Maybe he's just uh, running a little bit behind. But with that said, I wrote the uh, topic out for tonight, just a sort of starter topic. I don't know how long we'll go on this one, but I wrote first and favorites. And I was a little bit vague about that to you know, allow us to have a little bit of a lead in. And the things I kind of want to talk about are the first strain that you can remember trying uh, that actually had a name, if there was one, or if it was from a origin country or any information that you had, like the first or earliest things that you have memories of in your cannabis use. And then the second thing I want to talk about is your favorite. If you have one, um, you can name maybe three or something if you can't pick just one, but land race or heirloom strain, like something that isn't necessarily uh, bred by a modern breeder, but as an example would be like certain Afghani uh, land race or heirloom or you know Pakistani, things like that. Um, Thai, like Kyle has grown some Kerala and many other land race varieties and even if you haven't grown them if you've enjoyed consuming them i'd love to just go around the panel and i guess i'll start with the american one i know he's been using and growing cannabis for a very long time so i'll start first with uh what is your first earliest uh, memory as far as strains go that you came across when you started smoking well i guess i remember what they called was thai weed and it wasn't thai stick it was just regular nugs in a bag and that was the first like labeled one other than that it was just uh you know just weed and then um shortly after that one or yeah it was shortly after that one i came across what they called hawaiian and both of those were really good and stuck out so 
I would say those were my first that I remember being actually named something. Um, and yeah, the Thai weed, like I tell the story a lot. We, I got like two or three different ones that they said were Thai. One was like really dark and it almost looked like string. It was like really, uh, I was like, I, really? We just paid $55 for this ace because my buddy had gotten it for me. I'm like, come on, man. He's like, just whatever. So he rolled up a really thin joint. It was bigger than a toothpick, but not much. And me and him smoked it. I was freaking high. And it's like a different kind of high than what you get for most strains today. And then that Hawaiian stuff. And then we got another what there was called chocolate tie. And those were like little, those were little nugs, but they were brown in color. And it did definitely have a little smell of chocolate. And that shit was also a good high. And then when that Hawaiian came around, that was like the first time I saw really green. That shit like almost glue in the dark green. And it was just the sweetest, best weed I got up until that point. And I'll never forget the chick that I was getting it from was a waitress at the restaurant that I worked at. And uh, she would always try and talk me out of it. And I would be like, no, I, you got it for me. I'm taking it. I don't care. She's like, yeah, she tried talking me out of it because it was that good. You know, she regretted uh, that she promised me it. But yeah, those are my first memories of uh, named weed that I got to enjoy. It's interesting. I recently had a conversation with somebody about Hawaiian strains and they're asking like why so often it's just called Hawaiian. And I mentioned a couple of strains to them, like uh, the Punabutas and the Kauai Electric. And there's a few others out there that are notable that actually have like a name. But in that era, it was more often that strains were just called uh, where they were from. And in that case, there was like the Thai. It tastes like chocolate, so it was chocolate Thai. And, you know, there's Hawaiian. It was from Hawaii. And that's basically all they knew. In many cases, a lot of the people that were growing it, if they knew the strain, didn't necessarily uh, share that openly. Or that wasn't one of the things that traveled. Like a game of telephone, you tell somebody, oh, this is from Hawaii. This is the, even if they said like Puna Butter or Kauai Electric or whatever, they might just say, oh, this is Hawaiian. <laughs> Hawaiian cannabis, whatever. And that's what gets sold. So I wanted to take a second to introduce Brandon Russ. I know we don't have him for the whole show, but he did uh, pop in. So welcome in, Brandon. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Brandon Rust here. If you're not familiar, you can find me on IG at rust.brandon. I'm doing a big giveaway with a Puffco Proxy, uh, the new Kiaha that we have in. It's a cold-pressed Kiaha, not been dehydrated, so it has um, a higher diversity of saponins, also Micro Plus and a Smart Carbon Bundle. So, uh, yeah, you can go on my page and enter there and then also uh you can check out bokashi earthworks.com for all your microbe fertilizer amendment needs always good to be here thanks for having me welcome back always good to have the saponins or saponins however it's pronounced uh great stuff and so today we're talking a little bit about two different topics and Tao was the first one to answer the uh, first part and we're going to talk about the first strain that you've come across and your favorite land race or heirloom strain so brandon i'll pass to you since you just got here uh what was the first strain that you could remember coming across it could be a name of a strain or it could be like oh this is some mexican or this was some thai or afghani whatever like that no we just had uh like obviously when you're a kid and when you first start smoking you might not really know a whole lot about weed we just smoked this stuff called magical hay and it was literally i think it was like trimmings man that like somebody's dad had like uh, like, I don't know, maybe a couple of pounds and a paper bag full of trim and somebody had gaffled it. One of my friends had gaffled it from their dad and he like gave out sandwich bags, brown paper sandwich bags full of the stuff. 
And that's the first thing we ever smoked on, but we were just smoking that and uh, Mexican weed. The first time I ever smoked chronic, I remember exactly where we were, who I was with, you know, like everything. It was summertime. I was chilling with my homeboy, Sean Casey. And we went to this lady named Lana and she worked at the suntan center and we got some white rhino. And uh, we went down to, uh, I think it was Rincon Middle School in Escondido. It was like the weekday. I think it was a Saturday. So we hopped the little fence and we were uh, smoking a bowl. And then some other kid from one of the other schools rolled up and he had some chronic, but I don't remember what it was. The first time I ever smoked chronic, though, I was smoked. I got to match bowls with that kid because he had a different kind of chronic. And uh, we had that white, we had a gram of white rhino. And uh, man, that shit made me hallucinate. That still stands up to this day. I love white rhino. It reminds me actually a little bit of uh, chem dog, actually the smell and taste, but it's some fire stuff for sure. And it's funny that uh, a lot of people I think were smoking either Mexi brick or like trim. There was stuff that was called stress for a while before a lot of people in the U S knew how to grow flower, like with the 12, 12 cycle, or they couldn't get it to finish. They would just get like stressed out stuff that would only actually flower from stress. So they'd have like either small plants or stressed out plants that would produce a little bit of bud and they'd smoke on that. But it was never really also great a, stuff. a term that was generally used for weed that wasn't that good. Like yeah, that's where it came they from. They call stress too. The stress, yeah. I mean, it's like headache weed. It's like mids or brown pack, like terrible garbage weed. It's often called stress, depending on where you're at. Yeah, but, uh, man, yeah, I remember that, though. I would distinctly remember though a lot of the weed back, the chronic that we got back in the day. It had way more of that like earth and pine flavor to it like it really had that like really distinct like oh shit that's like piney that's super piney and i don't see a whole lot of that these days i'm uh definitely always on the hunt for that i've got some uh pines are kush and 79 christmas bud from uh csi humboldt they're pirates of the emerald triangle regular <clears throat> regular line but i wanted to pass it next over to spartan grown and ask what was the first strain that you can recall whether it was a name of a strain or a location that it might have came from so i've smoked the first time i smoked i smoked several times and didn't get high so i was smoking dabs and fucking flour and fucking everything because people were saying oh you gotta get high you got it so i was hitting everything i don't know what it was but um, the first time I got high, it was on an edible though. And it was a, a, a brownie that I made myself and made little mini loafs of brownie. And I ate the whole mini loaf. And I, that was a trippy experience. I was like fucking psychedelic. But, um, and then after that, once I started smoking weed, it worked, everything worked again, everything worked fine. And, uh, at that point I was growing. So I was smoking my stuff, my own stuff all my early stuff like lemon dream and bag seed shit and fucking ak-47 and northern light crosses and just shit like that it's funny because when you start listing off strains and same with brandon it can kind of tell you what years or era it came through like roughly and uh, it's interesting to think about i'm wondering if uh, you remember did you go with like a farmer style brownie that first time and mix all your strains into it? Or was it like a single strain run? Yeah, it was the same way that I do my RSO is I collect all my product that I can either turn to butter or now processed RSO in brown shopping bags, brown paper shopping bags, because they keep the product dry and they won't mold. And um, so I just keep throwing it in there and it's just a mix of all my strains. And, uh, and then I mix it up before I pull out of it too. I mix it all up and then I pull out of it. So yeah, I've always done that. 
I'm a big fan of that. I think um, the full spectrum, like the entourage effect is even more pronounced when you use multiple strains. And I've always really enjoyed mixing them once I, sometimes I'll try them all individually and then mix them together. Like I'll try two at a time or three at a time or however many, and just generally notice that like when you start mixing them uh, for me generally has pretty positive effects, but uh, it can also be interesting to experience a strain just like single uh, source, I guess, in a, in a sense, but I do appreciate both sides of it. And I want to kick it over next to, um, well, did you actually say, you said a couple of strains actually that you grew earlier, but uh, yeah, I'll pass it over to Kyle Breeder and ask what are the uh, first strains or locations of uh, plants that you remember uh, consuming? Yeah, so uh, I guess when I got into the scene, uh, I just remember basically what everybody would ask you is, do you want indoors or outdoors? And, you know, I think it was like 20 for an eighth of like that stuff that was basically like a, a, a an inch and a half by inch and a half bag that was compressed that literally had like an eighth in it somehow. Um, which was a bad weed, you know, I used, to, I used to go down to the basketball courts and uh, smoke these, these guys uh, down in the projects or whatever at the time would like roll these blunts and be like 80% paper or like 20% weed for some reason. But um, in regards to like strains, I remember, I just remember smoking some blueberry that some kid had and being completely perplexed of how this weed could literally taste like blueberries. And I just remember like ripping, uh, ripping a ball like behind the school uh, at the time and it literally tastes like blueberries and we were walking out and kind of like what Brandon was saying, I, th I feel like the weed was either different or maybe we just had like premature endocannabinoid systems or who really knows. But I mean, I was just like tripping balls too, like where every single house looked exactly the same with the same manicured lawn with the same everything. And then I was just like in this world for like 10 seconds and then like came back out of it. And it's just, uh, just some really trippy stuff. Um, and then I played, and as you guys know, I mean, I played with the uh, Kerala and Thai and uh, uh, Citral Kush and uh, some other stuff. And those are all, um, kind of like i think noah was saying uh the the wheat the high is just completely different man especially with the thai stuff i mean i was just becoming like i remember like being nervous to smoke because i didn't know what it, like how what would happen with it and uh, i just became extremely spiritual and like when i closed my eyes i could see the world as a whole and, and i understood why why we're all here and like why we're all one and it was like just some really uh spiritual type scenarios so uh but yeah those was, was my experiences I just got to ask since you brought it up because I just popped some uh, Pakistani Chitral Kush. Um, what did you think of that? I think you said Chitral. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of hard. I mean, a lot of the stuff I had uh, wasn't happy indoors. So uh, I didn't really get like maybe a, a, the full effect of it, but uh, it was a, a shorter plant. Uh, definitely had some really good smells to it. Um, I think I just kind of like crossed it too. So uh, I don't remember what happened with that, to be honest. I think I had a problem with it, with that, with that. And I think I ended, up, I ended up emailing the guy saying like, Hey, a lot of these, uh, I don't know. Or something. I didn't have a good experience with, with mine. So I don't know. What, what are yours like? They're just, just starting out, them? but um, I've noticed when I've done like the pine tar kush and the 79 Christmas bud, which are older uh, school, they're like Pakistani and um, lineage, if I'm remembering correctly. But uh, those, I usually pop like a bunch of stuff indoor. Like I'll pop like 15 to find the best two and they were never the best two. So I haven't actually gotten them to go through flower yet. So I'm going to do a couple of runs of like just those and find the best ones within them. But I think it might be something like you're talking about with maybe land race, not being so happy when they're brought indoors in some circumstances, but I wanted to take a moment to go ahead and welcome Matthew Gates. Yeah. Most people probably already know, but my name is Matthew Gates. I'm an Integrated Pest Management Specialist, and I'm happy to be here. I don't know what the topic is today, if we have one, but um, 
Yeah, if you're interested in pest information, you can ask some questions in the comments or check out my YouTube channel, Zenthanol. So it's just a kind of little bit laid back, uh, early little starter topic. We're going to talk about the first strain that you can remember coming across, whether it was like a named strain or location. It could be like Mexico, Afghanistan, Thai, whatever. Um, and then the second question that I'll go to, we're just all going to go around the panel and each answer it, um, is going to be your favorite, if you have one, uh, or favorites of the land races or heirlooms that are out there. So um, I guess I can pass it to you. everybody, or a few of us have answered so far the uh, first strain you can remember coming across or smoking or that, you know, sticks in your mind from your early days of consuming cannabis. So I'll pass that back to you, Matthew. Um, I would say that I actually just recently talked about this on the homegrown company channel or uh, in, in the podcast is actually being processed now, but uh, I came across a strain called orange tang and i'm pretty sure i've talked about it here on the show already uh but it still sticks in my head because um it doesn't exist anymore unfortunately uh it was just something that one person that as far as i know had uh, that was the name that he gave to it i fortunately don't know anything about the uh lineage or pedigree or anything like that but it had a very pungent like orange uh scent and also citric sort of flavor and I found that really uh, exciting because although that's probably not super uncommon, especially nowadays, this was like, I want to say at this point, six or seven years ago. It's not one of the first things I ever had experienced, but um, I guess the scarcity and also the, uh, you know, sort of pleasant effects, like it is what the name says on the tin, you know, it definitely was a name that was relevant to how it was experienced. and. Yeah, I suppose those two qualities are the main reason for that remembrance. That sounds like a really good one to this day, but there's definitely some uh, good orange stuff out there. Uh, Agent Orange and there's some like Jelly Bean Finos that have lots of orange. And um, I'm sure people in the chat will throw out some more orange, uh, orange gasm from Ross the one I was Jeff. It was orange too. Yeah, it's one of the ones Jelly you can bean. remember. But back from like the early 90s. Cali O, I think is the root of a lot Cali-O. of this. The orange flambe. I this have a cross. Crush, but it might have been a local name. That was back in Colorado. So I've got an orange dream haze that is super orange turps and they stick around forever, which I love. So orange crush is like uh the soda, like the beverage. Does it have any of that artificial uh oranginess to it, Doc? You know, I don't think so. It had orange hairs. Like, I mean, it looked orange. Um I cannot freaking remember what that like tasted or smelled like. Although I remember really, really liking it. Everybody really, really liked that orange crush. Um, but yeah, I was gonna say like, like several people when I started smoking, like in the early '90s. I'm really dating my stuff. Um, like everything was what we called swag and came in like a brick form until somebody broke it up into bags um and that was like for several years i mean that was the only thing i was ever exposed to was swag um and then i would say like somewhere on the mid 90s um we started getting what we called kind bud um 
And, you know, prices for swag, I remember it's like 20, 2040 for eighth or a quarter and Kindbud was 50, a hundred. So like Kindbud was just sort of like luxury caviar as far as we were concerned, starting off. Um, but yeah, nothing had names, man. I mean, nothing, even the Kindbud didn't have names. I mean, it was just like, you know, the guy I used to buy from would have like, you know, swag or Kindbud and you could choose one or the other, depending on what your budget was more than anything else. Um, but I do remember Orange Crush was a few years later and, um, yeah, everybody liked Orange Crush. And that is one of the first ones that I can remember sort of the name of. It's, uh, interesting, the kind bud, cause that often gets associated with Grateful Dead, who notably spread a ton of cannabis across the United States, uh, KGB or kind green bud. Sometimes it was called. Yeah. And, um, that was that definitely was just sort of like the generic label for all good quality like homegrown bud basically right or like quality grown that wasn't brick I mean, right right the, uh, although there was there was stuff that we called like pretendica or tendica um that was just kind of like it wasn't bricked but it was like crappy crappier at least and it wasn't like cured properly it like looked um, like it could be an indica properly. but not as strong yeah um yeah but there was definitely a qualitative difference to to go to to kind but and after a while like after i got a job and like got out of high school and stuff like that would definitely was sort of what we gravitated towards for me it was like uh the beasters and then kind but there was also brown pack like swag uh mexican brick and things like that i avoided that because i was a little yeah. aware of like the paraquat and stuff that was being sprayed and uh, that's always made me nervous. I was we like, smoked whatever we could smoke, man. And there was definitely a range of quality in the brick, but all brick weed was like 2040. And you'd be stoked when you got like a, a, a better quality, you know what I mean? Or if it wasn't like cut too much, because like at that point we were buying it from like friends of friends who bought it and they were like splitting. Nobody had scales. You were just eyeballing shit. <laughs> like you'd be happy if you got something that like was close to like looked like what it was supposed to be weighed out to, you know? That's what my wife used to sell. She's like, she eyeballed everything and she's like, she sold that so that she could buy the kind bud, which I think is a good strategy on her behalf. And uh, funny enough, Grateful Dead is notable for one of the, I would say earliest strains now, like reflecting back because it's gotten so much history the chem dog which came about in that 1991 uh deer creek amphitheater grateful dead show chem dog a 17 year old kid bought some what was called at the time dog bud because it got you so high it made you roll over like a dog is the story and uh he found some bag seeds grew them out and the chem it was found and that cut still goes around to this day uh allegedly you know who knows if it's actually the original same one or if it's been but people have a provenance where it goes through uh skunk VA after chem lost it skunk VA held it for years and then when chem got back on the scene skunk gave it back to chem dog the guy who also goes by mass g from uh massachusetts area but that is an in, uh, interesting kind of history dating back pretty far but most of us wouldn't have been exposed to like chem dog in the early 90s or mid 90s even but i will say i think a lot of that kgb or kind green bud was coming on behalf of like the super sativa seed club and the sensi seed bank and the seed bank of holland like neville and those guys who are sending you know uh thousands of seeds i think i saw one quote it said like he made like 50 grand in one month off of like he had like fifteen thousand growers in the u.s at a certain point uh that being neville so there was a lot of people that did start growing um and were ordering seeds from amsterdam and that area at the time yeah. so 
a lot more home growers kind of brought that movement of better quality herb for a lot of people, whether it had a name that was shared or not. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely thankful that it it turned around in the 90s because you can look yeah, at the High Times no, covers from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then 2000s. Like 90s, it starts getting better. And like 2000s, it's like, it looks like modern stuff. It's like pretty. Uh, oh man, I bug. miss some of those 90s strains, man. I miss Orange Crush. I would totally like grow that out today if I had the option to. Um, I used to get some skunky stuff, man. I mean, I, I got pulled over driving home once with just a bag, an eighth in my center console. And the cops smelled it. I mean, it was just like so powerful just standing at the door. I hadn't smoked it yet. They're like, you getting high tonight? I'm like, no. They're like, what smells like weed? I mean, it was so freaking strong. I'm like, damn it. The weed is so good. It got me busted. Like, um, before you even got to use it. Before I the, even freaking got to use it, dude. The yeah, dorm no, cops said that I to think, me. I think I'm in the camp there that there was a, a fluorescence of things. But I agree. I think that, you know, all lab testing has shown that we've been able to, to increase the, the percentages of the cannabinoids and of the terpenes and, and different things with more recent breeding efforts. So it's interesting. It's sort of like sometimes, you know, I feel like we're chasing a white whale. Yeah, maybe it's thiols and other stuff that we're not testing for, like esters that maybe have a stronger through the bag smell. Like one of the cops that worked at the dormitory I lived at, like during our freshman introductory speech, it was funny. He's like, it's interesting because back in the day, I used to only bust kids when they were smoking pot because I could smell the smoked bud. But he's like, the yeah. stuff nowadays is so strong. You can smell it through the bags and like through outside their doors. He's like, it just you know, gets dude, people busted by me. itself. That Skunk was me. always like that. Like that was it wasn't like named, but it was just called skunk because it smelled so skunky. Where I was at in Ohio, that was one of the earliest things that we ca- we got. There was some stuff that was like Afghani, um, allegedly AK-47, but uh those early days, I think it was a lot more unsure. Beaster, as I found out later on, was like Canadian imported stuff that they had been dry sifting and selling it to, uh, you know, people like myself who were in high school at the time who didn't know any better and were probably paying way too much for it. But uh, it did still somehow get you high, even though it had been dry sifted probably pretty aggressively. But uh, definitely much better times nowadays. And I, the one I definitely miss is the old school skunks that smelled like roadkill skunk, like dead or skunk spray even like. It's just uh, one of those things that you don't see too much. I see some st- stuff that's a little bit skunky nowadays, but nothing like the eye-wateringness of the uh, skunks of the yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. Or when you would years. actually be confused as to whether it was like a skunk or somebody smoking a bowl next door. People would say, who got sprayed? People would walk into, like, who, who, who got sprayed? Did your dog get sprayed by a skunk and shit like that? Like, it was uh, so spot on. Just kind of like uh, Matthew was talking about with that orange tang. When the label matches the smell so closely that it's indistinguishable i guess to most humans um subcool had a, a funny story about that where i think it was cali o or one of the other town might be able to correct me on this one um melvin maybe i think is what they were calling the cut that they had that was orange but somebody sent subcool a box of cannabis that was like just in plastic bags or something like that it wasn't vacuum sealed well enough and he said when he got to the post office it just reeked like oranges and the post people were like, oh, did somebody send you some oranges? And he's like, yeah. And just smiled and picked up the bag. And it like, wasn't heavy. So they were, I guess, probably a little bit confused. But he brought it home and it was just fucking, maybe it was orange velvet. Like somebody in the chat's going to correct me. There's so many orange strains out there. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting story. You could probably find it on one of the, you know, old weed nerds. But I think from you talking about it, it reminds me 
of him saying orange velvet, but I could be wrong too. Now my my mind is hazy too, but I think orange velvet is the strain. I know maybe it was Kelly O. I want to say Sub was saying orange velvet. Yeah, there's a also sometimes like the claims change with time once people find out further information like maybe somebody called it something it was like the nickname for a cut that was also like slimer was a chernobyl pheno and things like that so it, it can get really confusing when you try and search back through all the history of the stuff which... yeah especially when there's another pheno called golden ticket it's from the same fucking strain yep um so i just wanted to make sure we went around to everybody has everybody talked about their first strain that they remember so far i feel like we touched on everyone Because if so, then we can start talking a little bit about land race. I know Kyle touched on a couple, but I want to kick it over to the American one and ask, uh, do you show any favoritism towards any of the land races or have any special place in your heart for any of them or heirloom, whatever you want to call it? Maybe you can make the distinction between those two. Yeah, I don't really have a heartfelt connection with any of them. Uh, I don't know what that Hawaiian was that they called Hawaiian. But yeah, that mean and the Thai weed. That's why I... Uh, I was stuck in my head, you know, and maybe like the, of the name strains that are current or relatively current, AK-47, I think was the first one that I really remember getting a sample of that was like a real name or kind of current. Um, and as far as heirloom, like the cheese, which is skunk number one, is one of my, uh Yeah. I like the taste of that and the effects of that. So I don't know if that's an heirloom. Or, I know it's not. I feel like it's a sport mutation. It's almost right. like how some of the wines have like separated and become a different type of wine after a certain time. And it's like so identifiable. I feel like Exodus cheese is to skunk one. What uh, some wine person would be able right. to correct me. I don't, I don't know what the actual example is, but Matthew, is that maybe an example of what might have happened there or just. I feel, you know, I feel like a sport mutation is like not quite that what you're talking about is more like a um like a, a sort of phenotypic change like a like a variegation for example like sort of so so i'm not sure that we're using that in the right way i'm probably misusing it to be perfectly honest i just i recall that like in wine there was like one maybe it's like chardonnay or something and it, it changed and then now there's i don't know there, there's so many different fucking yeah. wines out there but, I think the cheese was just a you know a certain genotype of the uh, skunk that was special that they latched onto. Yeah, because skunk one was really a seed for a long time, so they could have you know popped that as a seed versus having a cut of it. Yeah, yeah. Which is something I totally kind of had forgotten there. Sorry about that. One of the uh, land races that I recommended to you recently, and uh, some talks with some of the other people I know that you're still hunting for the chocolate was the Rustam or Rustam, R-U-S-T-A-M, Kush, which is a Afghani. And um, maybe that's something that I'll go into when I start talking a little bit about some of my thoughts on land race. But yeah, there's the Afghan selection, which actually has like two different strains from the bulk region of Afghanistan. And a lot of people used to just call like Afghani, all Afghani is kind of like Afghani and think that they're all short, broadleaf. But this uh, account to me has kind of proven that there's several, several different strains and uh, sections of Afghanistan that all produce very different colors and uh, smells. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. But I wanted to take a second to welcome in Noah the Groa, because we've only gotten for a little bit, and say welcome back. We're really, really happy to see you. Hope everything is uh, going well. 
Yeah. Hey, how's it going, everybody? I'm uh, I'm Noah DeGuro on Instagram there. You can find me there. I've had kind of a tough time going on here the last few weeks, but uh, happy to be here with all of you. So tonight we are talking about uh, two topics just to kind of get the ball rolling. It's kind of more of a laid back, just uh, experiential show, I guess. The first part of the show, everybody talked about their first strain that they could remember coming across, like that they tried smoking or consuming, uh, whether it's like Afghani or Thai or Mexican or something like that, or an actual strain like White Widow or something. And then the second half we're just getting to is talking about some land races and maybe if you have a favorite land race from around the world. But uh, we'll have you answer the first question that we all went through, which is uh, what was your first experience with uh, cannabis as far as consumption? And do you remember a strain or location that it came from? That's interesting. Um, so I remember the first few times I was pretty young, you know, 15 when I first started smoking. And it, you didn't really know, you know, it was just weed. Someone had it. You tried it. I think the very first time I remember it was like White Widow. Like I remember vividly like buying an eighth when I was like, you know, 16, the guy talking it up. It was like, oh, it's only three grams for 40. It was, it was really, really good. It was like white looking. I vividly remember that. So that'd probably be that. And as far as like a land race strain, strain like, I, you know, I don't got a whole lot of experience. I mean, I've, you know, here and there, but I, you know, not much to speak on that. But I vividly remember that White Widow when I was 16. Yeah, like the first kind of name brand weed that I smoked that I knew the name was. You know, this is, you know, almost 20 years ago. But it's funny because that was the first one for me that had like a specific name too that wasn't skunk or like land race stuff. And um my brother actually, who's four years older than myself, went off to college and he was telling me about it. And I'm like, in my head, I thought it was just like such a stupid strain, like the name of it. I was like, because like Black Widow is a spider, like why would it call it White Widow? And then like when I actually saw the bud, like you said it described it perfectly. It was so frosty. The bud actually kind of had like a white appearance to it, which was pretty rare at that time where most buds were green. If you were lucky, uh, brown, if you were getting the cheaper stuff and, uh, it could even get like black or red or more oxidized and, you know, be pretty, uh, lacking the enjoyability that we might find today. So interesting to hear we had similar, uh, experiences. That was a pretty popular strain. I think it won the high times cannabis cup in, 97 or maybe that's super silver haze i can't remember but uh shanti baba the guy who uh, i note as creating the white widow changed its name when he left greenhouse seed company to black widow and it's much less popular under that name and mr nice seed company has probably sold a lot less of that than greenhouse seed company but a lot of people have the same essential uh, parent genetics because he took his stuff when he left the company and still uses the same and uh yeah it's interesting that whole debacle that went down over there but they definitely put out a lot of really killer seeds, so I'm thankful for them. I'm going to pass it back to Spartan Grown and ask, do you uh, have any fondness in your heart for any land races that you maybe have come across or tried smoking or seen? Uh, no. Uh, well, I mean, I don't really want to have the argument of what's a land race, but uh, I guess Durban Poison would be the closest one that I could come up with that's uh, that might be considered a land race strain. That that's I definitely a land race. Still. Okay, so Durban Poison probably would be a landress that i do enjoy but i don't grow it <laughs> so, i'm not, not saying you have to grow it even if you have no know of it and have smoked it or tried it because that right like is, i'm uh, saying though my point is is the strains that i grow now are the ones that i love and that's not one of them i do like it of the landresses i really do like the different poison and i haven't tried to be fair a lot of the landresses to to be a hundred percent certain that i like or dislike them but i think that breeding whether it was you know logical or just pollen chucking 
the selection part of it was still always for the higher quality in one way or another strain and that gets us away from landris and that's why we don't see a lot of it right now i wonder if um part of what people talk about with like oh we're not getting those same highs as the days of old is is because we bred so far away from land race and that's maybe why i'm touching on it a little bit is uh kyle went through this process in his earlier days when he was um just i think starting his seed company and working with lots and lots of land race and there's other people that are doing this still preservationists and things like that uh, but what many of us i think find is it's so unruly to grow it it's so untamely a lot of these like sativas for example they'll grow like 15 feet tall and like how are you going to fit that in a grow room like it's just you flip it from seed like just throw it right in flower or uh it just takes special uh, training methods and techniques or like someone else had mentioned earlier i think it was kyle actually they might just not even be the happiest even like the quote indica or like shorter stouter stuff might not grow as well as some of the hybridized stuff it might have a slower veg it might just not like the intensity of the light like some of the hybrid stuff that will just veg fast and produce well and uh so i definitely see the reasoning a lot of people like the modern hybrids but i also um wonder and think back if maybe some of that stuff is worth going back through maybe not for us individually because uh we a lot of us like those eight nine weakers so we could get multiple cycles in not uh 16 to 22 weakers because that's just a mess but somebody out there is going to be growing them well, or just dedicating them like a corner i mean that that genetic resources they're repositories of genetic resources and i think it's great to go to to different land race populations as a breeder and and look for new traits that you want to try to bring into other varieties but yeah, I'm I'm with you, and I think I'm with Spartan, and and thinking that I'll leave the actual growing of those plants to, to you know somebody that's better equipped for that, um, and choose to grow myself plants that are, are really designed for, designed for, but bred for you know production in cultivation under high intensity like we're doing. Some people call the genetics day like designer genetics. They're bred to be cultivated in the environments that we're doing it to get the types of highs or bag appeals or structures, um, depending on which breeder you go through. So I do think that there is some element of that with selective breeding that has happened, um, which is fascinating to see how much it can change. Like we've seen dogs started from wolves, right? And then we could take like a wolf and turn it to like a chihuahua or a pug, or you could turn it into like a mastiff. And there's a lot of different ways you could go with it. So I find that all very super fascinating. And uh, yeah, great, exactly. And, and that's where, you know, crop breeders of all different kinds of crops look to those land race populations when they want, when they need that sort of genetic diversity, when there's a new susceptibility to disease or when there's, you know, some other new trait that you want to try to discover and bring into other populations. But then they're almost always crossed back into other varieties. And, and you know, I, I think that there's a lot of breeders that are out there doing exactly that with cannabis. And as far as the, the high goes, Jack, I'm in agreement with the, it was Detroit River Rat and, and Chet, he brings up a good point too. And I've always kind of said this at the same time. He says, give the weed you smoke to someone just starting and they'll get as high as we did as a teen. And I think a lot of that, oh, I got so high back in the day. Well, yeah, the first time you get high, you're going to get really high. That That is a thing. That happens. I don't, I don't know. I'm still hard-pressed to believe that uh, the weed that was uh, 
back in the day was getting people higher than the weed of today. I just, I still, don't yeah, I, agree with I don't that. believe it. I think the, the ratios matter. Shows that we're getting stronger weed. I just think ratios matter. Yeah. So, like Kyle Breeder, for example, has gone to a lot more <laughs> CBD in his modern times. A lot of people have said, and I've heard this not just from Kyle, but from many others. All of a sudden, they just couldn't keep smoking the weed anymore. It gives them panic attacks. It causes other issues. And maybe the stuff of old wasn't as high of a yeah. THC percentage, or maybe they have more responsibility in life. I think that it's multifaceted in every single case, but go ahead, Tom. Yeah. You guys are like, the old stuff disappeared. It's the old stuff, what makes the new stuff. So trust me, there was potent strains back then, just like today. And there was potent strains that were like differently potent. It was like a different high because probably they were grown in their native country, you know, for 20 weeks of flower, you know, and for many, many other reasons. But yeah, it was definitely some, there was definitely potent, very potent weed back then. But most of it wasn't because even if it was potent when it was harvested, by the time it got to America, it was beat down. Half of the trichomes fell off. Half of them were uh, melted into the bags or the whatever they shrink wrap it in and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, to say that the the weed that definitely it's more consistently better today. But back in the day, there was some legit weed. I know it. I mean, even farther than that, people were getting high in some way or another with like those bronze braziers, like yeah, yeah, you know, and ten they, millennia and, ago or something. So there, there were ways. There were ways to make it happen. That, even like clay pipes. That's great. The, you bring that up. Hold builders. on, hold on. It's great you bring that up because way back then when they found that guy's stash of weed, it was all female and it was high. It would they like bred first. They knew what they were doing. They were breeding for the high. So if you say, well, we were breeding for THC, maybe there was a lot more breeders of marijuana in current times. But even back then, they were looking for high, you know? So, I, yeah, it, it kind of like they were breeding for THC back then, too, I think. Or, yeah, not even specifically THC, but just whatever high was desirable. Like it might be THCV. It might be CBDV. It might be one of these other rare cannabinoids or flavonoids or terpenes that they like the smell of, the taste of, the effect of. Um, you know, there's many, many different reasons. I wanted to. Yeah. I, wait, let me just say one thing to, to Tyler, though. Look back at the like the best bud pictures from high times in the 80s. I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not the same quality that we're smoking today. Looks you can tell that just by sort of the with, pictures. I was going to say some of the worst looking but, but I've but, smoked is some of the best high. That's true. Yeah. No, I give you that resin too. On but... that, you don't see the resin content on that mm -hmm. little morsel of blood that's in the middle of those sticky, stringy leaves, you know? <laughs> Well, yeah. Chem 91, so, for its credit, came out in 91 and it was it, tested totally 31%. And yeah, they I mean, in Colorado called that the most potent strain in like 2007 or whatever the fuck when they first started doing all this testing. Chemdog 91, that strain that's been around since 1991, tested yeah, yeah. like 31% THC, which is pretty damn high. Yeah. I think that um, the growing practices might be a little better now. And I think that um, it's not so much that the top end quality has increased, but the bottom end quality has vastly increased, yeah. which means tolerance has increased which means that everybody thinks the weed is weaker now. I think that's more yep. of the, the, you know, crux behind everything. Than, than Plus legality. We can really use more of it more better. often. We have better access. You can use it all day if you want to now. It's like actually legal in some states, so you can actually do that. Where before it was mm -hmm. like, if you had a job, it was really fucking hard to just smoke 24-7 <laughs> and like survive. Because how, one, how are you going to afford it back when it was like $400 an ounce or like 7K a pound, when now it's like you can get, 
pounds for less than that in places. So it has definitely certainly changed. I, I think Spartan, what you're saying, and uh, Detroit River Rat also hit the nail on the head there. Or if, if you just take a tolerance break, like for a month or a year or something, and then you come back and you smoke, that first time, regardless of what strain it is, it's going to smack you way harder than if you've been smoking 24-7 for the last week, uh, regardless of amount. You yeah, just made me remember something I hadn't thought about in a long time, Jack. As in the mid-90s, Pine Bud, what I was talking about, yeah, it was $400 an ounce, and gold was like $385 an ounce. Um so the, the cannabis that we were smoking was literally worth its weight in gold. Um, go check out what the price of gold is now. I mean, like, yeah. skyrocketed and cannabis plummeted. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Inverse. That's crazy just to think about that. Anyway, that's crazy that that time was really, it was true. It was more valuable. Mm -hmm. So like it was more valuable about, like, than money gold. growing on trees. Cannabis was literally the definition of that back then because it was more valuable than gold and you could just produce it. <laughs> Like yes. we all know yeah. how you can do it now. Yeah, that's exactly out. right. But I didn't, you know, you're right, Jack. Back then, I could have a skewed view because of the tolerance. We only got the really good shit every once in a while. So it wasn't like we were smoking really good weed all the time. So when it did come up, it hit you harder probably than than what many would think. You know what I'm saying? You're right. It blasted you and you didn't get strain tolerant because you didn't just have that cut on deck. Like I could go get forum cut Girl Scout cookies from two of my homies any day of the week and it's like pretty much the same thing all year round and like j1 and a whole bunch of other cuts that people just run because it's it and you know well that cookie supposedly has a durbin poison in it so they have it you know the, yeah strain races uh land races and it, it still all starts from the start you know so we it's all just are, are all standing on the shoulders of giants yeah. whether it was like the afghanis who got it from people in pakistan or their native afghan their elders people who have been growing it for maybe hundreds of years before them their great-grandparents um which i do want to highlight because like i said and i've showed this off before and i'm not like promoted or sponsored by them in any way or affiliation i don't even know if they even still sell all these varieties many of them i think might not even be available anymore but this is a afghan selection and so many people in my lifetime just instill to this day like experienced knowledgeable people in the cannabis community will describe afghan as if it's all just one strain and here is a little photo highlight of at least six different specific strains and this uh kushcock and i think uh shulgar are both from the same province so it's like they have two strains from one area and this goes through and gives a little bit more description on each strain uh, Kosh. It says the province and it starts, it tells a little bit about the flavors and the colors in certain posts, but they're not all just the same. So, like when people say, here's uh, the Sholgar and the Kushkak that are both from Bulk province. And you can see just by looking at them, they are structurally different. They have different colors and they give information on each one based on like the river and uh, mineral nutrients in the soil and things like that. And um, Look, this one says motor oil, gassy, uh, fresh is strong and dominant in this cultivar, uh, terpious hash around, <laughs> a bulk chillum. People really like this one, apparently. And then you go over to Kushkok, which is also from the bulk province. And just looking at the structure, like from this one to the last one, there is quite a difference. But I mean, you could see that plant to plant and uh, even the same strain, but I just think it gives a little bit of an idea of the difference between Afghan strains and the fact that some of these uh, heirloom or land race, whatever we want to call it, 
because land race, some people feel like is completely untouched. I think heirloom is probably a better term for this kind of stuff because the families have been passing it down one generation to another, like an heirloom tomato. You know, people bred it, kept it, held on to it, and had influence. They no, were what land race actually means. It's fine to call that land race. Land race does not mean untouched. Land race are cultivars that are are planted by traditional farming methods by populations that live there. I mean, there's land race maize, for example, that farmers that I, I've studied grow. Um, so just because of uh, farmers are growing it or selecting it, that, that's what land race is. That's the difference between land race and wild. Okay, now what would the distinction be between land race and then heirloom? There isn't one. Not much, yeah. Okay, that's I've yeah, kind of heard that used synonymous, synonymously. Like. Heirloom is the word we use oftentimes, um, like is it more of a marketing term for fruits and vegetables? That's um, a good question. But yeah, they come from, I mean, an heirloom, like an heirloom tomato would be from like a, a land race variety of tomatoes. That's kind of how I understand it as well. So they're from a specific territory, an heirloom tomato? Yeah, they're, they're the, going to be maintained originally. by a traditional, a, a traditional farming culture, basically, um, that, that works the land somewhere. Yeah. It's right. so, selected that has grown and cultivated that variety. So like these Afghan tribes or you know families. Yeah, have, exactly. There this is like a desert tribes variety. Tribes that have cultivated that. Like with the corn, in each little community in the mountains there in southern Mexico, each little community has their own variety, their own land race variety. And they trade with each other sometimes. And those plants cross-pollinate and they select plants to save for the next year. And they definitely trade with other people in their community seeds. Um, and, and that's how you maintain land race varieties of crops. Um, hugely genetic diverse usually, um, and often very different from the modern varieties that are like you know, these corn, for example, and the modern varieties that are sold by corn companies. Um, so it's the same sort of basic thing. If there's a group of people that even took a variety and moved someplace and kept cultivating that variety through traditional agriculture is such that that variety changed and evolved, we would consider that to be a, a, a land race variety in that new place, I think, for a cultivar. This is a, another interesting one, just to touch back on this page. I was talking about this one earlier, the Rustown Kush. Um, I was mentioning this as how they had some chocolatey phenos, but this is one of the things that really kind of broke the stereotype to me is, look, NLD heirloom, so narrow leaf dominant or narrow leaf drug variety. You can see in the background, this is not your typical Afghani looking plant. Um, they describe it as fruity, sweet, floral, and initially gives you a lightheaded feeling and the giggles. So not like the typical, uh, you know, indica in the couch kind of broadleaf plant that many people would think of when they think of Afghani versus this Daima desert valley variety looks completely different. It almost looks like it could be an autoflower variety. And uh, it's just crazy to see that they've been able to thankfully highlight this. And then there's like some mountain varieties they run for hash where they are literally snowing in the background uh, for those that are listening on the podcast. And it's just uh, really cool to see actually all the wild amounts of variation within you know, just this one, what some people with, would call air, heirloom or land race. The same thing is true to uh, India. 
because that's where indica comes from. The term is is supposedly from indica. I mean, from India. But there's there's thin leaf freaking Indian. Uh, I don't know if they're sativas, but they're thin leaf plants certainly from India. Super thin. I mean, because we know that the you know the the leaf morphology isn't like connected to other traits. So like, right. Exactly. Probably people are just theory that it it is right. in that that pop sort of ideology that there's a difference between sativas and indicas and broadleaf and narrow leaf and one sleepy and the other's uplifting and all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just I think it's really important to highlight this stuff and and remind people that it's not always going to be like oh you hear Afghan and many people think broadleaf and they also think sedating. Um, when there's a lot of variety in, in India, I think um, is is Kerala in India, Kyle. You said that you're about to head out here at eight, but I think that was one of the varieties from India. And when Kerala. I think India, yeah, yeah, I believe it is a uh, Kerala or Kerala. I'm not sure how you really pronounce it. Kerala. Yeah, I looked it up, or actually, uh, somebody told me somebody from Kerala, India. It's like, hey, I'm from Kerala, and it's actually pronounced this way. And I like Googled it, and sure enough, it was. It's spelled K E R A L A. So it looks like Kerala, but it's Kerala. So at least for my uh, American speaking ass, that's how I would have pronounced it initially, but uh, Kerala. And that's just one of many. And when I think of Indian varieties uh, from India, I think of narrow leaf stuff typically. And like a lot of the uh, headier uplifting, like tall uh, giant plants, because that's usually what I see the people over there posting, but they also have broadleaf stuff. Uh, Pakistan, I think is also known for lots of broadleaf stuff, but they have narrow leaf things there as well. So it just shows to uh, the diversity, even within when you hear like the country, there is lots of diversity within that country. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to highlight it for the first hour so far. So I know Kyle's got to get going here. Um, of all those land races that you touched on, did you mention your favorites and uh, have, has any of them made their work into your current breeding? Uh, yeah, actually, I have a, uh, a tie by Afghani that I called uh, heterosis that I released. And I was just really curious for, for myself, you know, breeding in the cannabis, how that turnout was. And uh, ironically, because they were both both very stable, all the children were completely identical. And I was just kind of looking at it like, wow, like this is this is how it works, you know, and it's just it's just and then you can kind of see, uh, you know, which, which directions people went with things, uh, you know, in certain ways and stuff. So it was really cool. Uh, right now, I have some stuff direct from Ghazni, Afghanistan, and it, like, makes your eyes water. That's how stinky it is. Like, I had, like, uh, I wear these masks when I do potting, and even with these masks on, I can still smell the plant. It's only, like, six inches tall. Uh, it's just, like, these really stinky, and they're not happy at all by any means. So, like, it looks like I don't know what I'm doing when you go into the grow room, but uh, they're growing. They're just not, uh, like, flourishing or praying. But uh, they're really cool. I have some uh, 1974 Panama Red that I got from somebody, like an, uh, an old biologist that was been collecting stuff for a while. So that's extremely interesting. But uh, I have a huge collection that no one really knows about. I mean, I've been collecting stuff from, uh, you know, Moroccan and uh, Turkestan and all these other crazy things. And I remember when me and you guys were all first doing this, I made a post about older stuff and... Uh, all these people uh, basically sent me like film canisters from like the seventies and like the eighties. And so I have like this crazy collection of stuff from like seventies and eighties. And like some guy wrote like, Oh, I found these in my father's like, you know, cigarette pack or can, I don't even know. Like just like really old stuff that they don't even have anymore, like film canisters and stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I'm bringing some of that stuff back. I mean, I'm in the process of doing some skunks hopefully and some uh, actually, and I'm, well, ironically, I'm trying to keep clapping away, but 
Uh, I just found somebody that knows, uh, I can't think of the guy, oh, Neville. So he was friends with Neville back in the day and there's an NL zero and he is actually in the process of getting them from somebody that know that knows Neville. And I'm going to be doing a trade with him. And I didn't even know there was such a thing or that the original stock still existed. So I, I would just yeah. say be skeptical, Kyle, because I know the guy who made the Northern Lights. So does Brandon. His name's Greg McAllister. And to my yeah. knowledge, it's not an NL zero. That sounds like a little bit of a. Well, I don't know if it was like something story. about, I mean, I'd, I'd have to show you the this, this story. I mean, I don't, again, like I take everybody for a grain of salt, but uh, the people he knew and, and the way it sounded, it seemed pretty legit to me. I'll, I'll, have, I'll send you what he said. And maybe you can kind of, you know, let me steer me in a different direction. Of course, growing out and at least seeing, I mean, I hate to be like not trying to throw water on the fire, you know, shit on the parade. Yeah. But. Yeah, no, I get it. Uh, we'll see, you know, or maybe it's probably, again, like you said, it's probably bogus, but I have some really cool stuff that's coming out. I am doing my Durban Poison back. So, uh, if anybody that is listening or even obviously you guys on the panel, uh, you know, you guys can always just reach out and, uh, you know, I'm always willing to share. And um, so, but yeah, but that's it. So I got yeah, I do got a jet, you guys. Sorry. Uh, if anybody's looking for seeds, I do have some on my website at purebreeding.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram at pure underscore breeding, or if you need to email me because you don't do social media, it's pure breeding, the letter M, the letter A at gmail.com. And uh, I'm glad you guys are all here, man. I'm glad everyone's safe. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next weekend. Good one, Kyle, man. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you for coming, man. I always uh, appreciate your input. And it's definitely uh, nice out, hearing about all the land race stuff tonight. And I uh, wish you the best, man. Have a great night. Thanks. Take care, guys. Take it easy, man. So I think uh, I might do a little share screen on somebody that I will. I'm not sponsored by them also, but I do love and support the guy, ATG Acres, Aaron the Grower. I'm going to pull up one of his most recent posts because I think it might still be going on. I could be wrong though. Um, yeah, he's got a bunch of <clears throat> he's got a bunch of stuff that just, no hope dope. He's got this. We were just talking about like uh, Doc was doing a good job in the chat breaking down the like domesticated, undomesticated, wild, feral. Well, yeah. he's got a few different batches. He has what he's describing as haze, perps, big bud, and pest slash grasshopper resistant general population and Faciated are the different types of hemp seed that he's been collecting from the No Hope Dope project. And he said, I think if, okay, 48 hours left, this might be up. So this was two days ago. Maybe you can still get it. But he said, go to hegacres.com to reserve your triple order. Buy one pack, get three. So for every one pack you buy, you get three. If you're interested in this type of project, I'd say it's probably more aimed at breeders uh, looking yeah. for, you know, types of resistance and things that, or CBD type people i'm not sure if he's gotten any of them tested yet but i just want to support our buddy aaron the grower and uh pass it to the panel and let i think brandon might have more information or if anybody else has any more information on this and i'll show off some of the plants and stuff that he selected these from yeah i think uh oklahoma has traditionally been home to hemp cultivation or was historically and so he was able to find you know some some feral fields where the hemp was just growing wild unassisted and he was able to collect seeds from several different varieties that type of and what i see is this type of uh uh seed stock could be used if you're looking for um different type of resistance or if you're trying to climatize something for a specific region of the world this being oklahoma you know you in oklahoma for outdoor you need to find stuff that both has a uh, mold resistance because we do get hot and humid weather out here. Uh, and you need to find stuff that finishes relatively uh, fast. 
So that way, when the rains come in, you don't um, you don't ruin anything. So you want to try to find stuff that finishes mid to late September before the rains. Um, but, you know, that's the same thing with a lot of the land race stuff. The land race stuff that I've ever grown out wasn't stuff that you would want to, like, grow for me personally for, like, my own personal consumption or for, like, in a commercial aspect. It's more for doing line work with where you can – where you're trying to pull out, like, specific traits or – uh, where you're finding, you know, plants that have that don't need as much nutrition or a uh, thing that might have better resistance to pests and, and, you know, outdoor stress factors and stuff like that. But on 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 their own, all the land race stuff that I've ever cultivated, it was it wasn't really as good as the modern day hybrids. It was just stuff that, you know, you might want to use to work, you know, some stuff into. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, yeah, you guys you just... tried the Congo? Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I cut you off. So I, the people won't have heard what you said. So can you please repeat that for the listeners? Yeah. Has anyone on the panel grown out or smoked with the, the Congo? Yeah, I did the Congo lease. I didn't really like it either. But it was it potent, even though if you didn't like it? No, nah, it really wasn't. Yeah. It like it wasn't anything that I would like. Well, it okay. took a long time. The terpene profile wasn't wasn't was, unique it was just kind of that yeah it was just kind of that like lemon lemon pine kind of and it wasn't like a spectacular like even sort it was just generic all around i didn't i didn't personally like it at all you know okay. yeah because i went again, it was a big plant it had a big frame on it so there's right. things that can be taken away from any of these any of this stuff but personally like for me i've gone in you know, looked at a bunch of different land race stuff. And my favorite stuff really to work is taking the older varieties from like the late nineties, early two thousands, when they started to get more like the modern look to them. Um, some of those I've found have huge, huge frames, big terps, but not the best bag appeal and sometimes not the best bud structure. So being able to cross those into like some of the new modern stuff, that has the the real the real bag appeal and that that commercial look for the density mixed in with some of those things have been my favorite like the blueberry train mac for instance you know that one is one that i did that everybody's liked because it has huge frames on it has that turp profile and it still has good you know bag appeal and commercial value to it you know for production <laughs> Just so this on screen is this just uh, this is just wild hemp grown in India, and it's literally feral wild on the side of the road. So that was like Aaron's unwatered, but it was still like healthy and green. It's like covered in grasshoppers, no like little bit of no damage. It's fascinating how with so little care it can still survive. And, and you can uh, see it. Hence it's why it's really called weed, thin. I guess. Yeah. So I figured I'd just show that quick. Super cool. I wanted to make a note about the red. So if you're talking about the Congo, just generally, a lot of people talk about Congolese red, which sort of is a weird one because as far yeah, as land races go, you would think of like it being pure from Congo, right? When you hear that name, Congolese red. But that strain, from what I understand, is actually a hybrid of an African Congolese plant with an Afghani and a Mexican strain. So it's not like the pure Congolese if you were to get Congolese from their Yeah, there's one sources. labeled roberts creek congo which i'm pretty sure is supposedly straight congo yeah that's that that's supposedly like a super uppity like 
really uh, strong T- high. I think it's T- known for THCV. THCV. High in THCV is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I also wasn't super impressed by the Red Congolese, but then when I looked into it, everywhere was talking about how it was also like an Afghani, Mex- Mexican, and Congolese strain all blended into one. And um, the place I had it from was like, it was indoor grown. So I guess it's going to be like- I got my thing. cut. I got the cut that I had from uh, Jojuri, the one that I grew out. How long did it take to finish? Man, it took way too long. It was definitely not something that could be used for like commercial- uh, cultivation and even outdoor, it took it took a really long time. So I'll like probably three, say four, 12, ten weeks past everything else. Weeks. Yeah, probably thirteen weeks. That's pretty really? rough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff like Neville's haze and some of these older hazes that go like sixteen weeks to twenty two weeks. Which Ooh, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I did an NL five haze that was around like 12, 13 weeks, and that was one that I would fucking run though. I would run that because just of how good, how, how good of quality as far. And like, and even the test results on that was like, I was coming back at like almost 8% terps on that with like uh, really high, uh, high, high twenties for THC when I was running that stuff. But the, the, like the only way that you could justify for me uh, the long flowering time is if you're getting incredible yields off of it, where it's just like, just hitting home runs on fucking production even then it's got to be uh close to the other finishing times to some respect it can't be double the time right because if you're going to get double the harvest i don't think you're gonna double the weight but it's possible i guess uh, depending on how you grow it but the other thing i was gonna say is you'd have to also potentially command a higher price for it and in the current market times (laughs) things only seem to be going one way and that seems to be down pretty hard so it uh I don't know if it's going to be worthwhile for a lot of the commercial producers to grow it. So I think it would be one of those things that is going to be um, the home growers or people that uh, specialize in those types of things might find a niche in that because if it's never going to be grown commercially, especially not well all the way to the finish, then it opens up a, a small niche craft market for some of those people that really like those longer finishing sativas that offer. And I just say sativa in terms of like how it grows and it finishes, but uh, the effects are kind of all over the board, actually, and sort of the flavors and smells and things like that. It's all not all just one thing, but yeah, yeah I, I don't see too much of it. Dangerous why we might lose some of these, you know, strains that nobody takes a liking to. No one's growing them. There are going to be no more seeds, and the ones that are old are going to die, and then where will we be? But I know there's people that are strictly preservationists, so, you know, shout out to them. I couldn't sure. even see myself doing two, like, I want to pick and choose what I'm going to, you know, cross, but yeah, shout out to them. Yeah, like the people that open pollinate like a line just to keep it alive without the human yeah, selection, to the, keep it as pure, yeah. untouched as possible, essentially just to refresh it each, you know, however many years, because like Doc said, even with the seed banks where they're stored at perfect temperature every so often it has to be reproduced because seeds yeah. will even stored at temperature only stay good for so long and even in that's that what, storing process they change some that's what todd mccormick did with greg's uh stock of uh northern lights you know what i mean like all those all those uh nls that he just released i think like over the last couple of years all that came from old seed stock that was from like you know the the early nineties or something like that, that they're just like, Oh, you know what? Let's pull this out of the fridge. I think Greg gave 
taught a bunch of seeds and then he just did an open pollination to do preservation on it, you know. I think same thing with the haze too. Todd did the same thing with uh, with I think Mel Frank and Mel Frank's uh, all the seed, all the haze stock that Mel Frank had. You know what I don't notice in a lot of the um, old catalogs and stuff. There's not a lot of African strains, and I'm telling you, man, I had that. Those there's a company called Afro Pips, and I I don't know if they're out of business, but I just found them on a website i don't know if you can buy the seed but they are on seed finder too but i grew out in nigerian it was called nigerian 99 it was a nigerian cross to cindy 99 and this was like back in the maybe 2000 even and that plant was a monster it was totally legit i had it in the ground in the woods and it just was a monster plant and uh yeah i think i think african seeds seeds from africa probably do really kill though that that's not a lot around. I only ever remember like a couple of different African stuff. I think there was like the power plant was African, the Malawi, the Congo. Seedsman has that power Africa. Yeah, I think that's power plant, right? Is power I think plant it is cross. power plant recreation, yeah. Yeah. And and so there was some there was some African stuff. I remember because I did like the Malawi, the Malawi dog, which is Malawi times chem dog. From like, I think that was in like 2001. I did a like a, a preservation on that, but I think mostly what came from Africa was the Malawi gold was like really popular one back then. Um, there was another one too. I'm forgetting. Poison for sure. I mean, from the Durban, South Africa. Yeah, the dirt. Yeah, Durban poison too. That was that was. African. That's still like even there. They celebrate that shit there. They love it. They grow the shit out of it. It's like still super popular. I've seen like 2021, 2022 reports of people like this is our Durban growing in Durban and like the people if I can love that shit still. So it's like alive and strong. You know, out in New York, because I was out, yeah, I was uh, judging the organic cup out there. They had a lot of, they had a lot of hazes. They had a lot of, a lot of sour diesel. Yeah, that one. That's New York's all about that. Yep. something is a famous uh, guy, well, you know, well-known in New York, but the fifth. But yeah, here's that. I just found this. I don't even know. This isn't their site. This is some other site. But this is what they offered was uh, Mambo, I don't know, Sangoma, Fast Blast, Malawi Gold, Nigerian Power Malawi, and Senegal Haze. Senegal Haze. Oh, the Senegal Haze. I remember that shit. So, yeah. That shit's yeah. crazy. But yeah, that Nigerian, I still remember it was a monster. It was just like, and it just, yeah, it didn't have much uh, newts and it just kicked butt. So, yeah. I can see from the appearance why a lot of people aren't still growing it to this day, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard, man. It's hard because I've grown out a lot of that land race stuff. Afghanis, Pakistanis, you know, Thais, Colombians, dude. And it's like, you just don't get for what they are, like you'd really have to do work on them and do some like really heavy, like large selection to really like walk away with, with good, good stock to do line work with, because like, here's a good instance. You know, I had these Afghanis, like I forget which, which region they came from and the plants were like real healthy. They got really, really big, huge, huge buds on them, but it was just like no trichome coverage. They were like, they took a lot longer than they should have the finish. And then they just really lacked in that, like, you know, like 
the the department like they would have some unique terps but they wouldn't be like something that was super loud or it was like oh you know this is worth worth you know having just to keep around because of you know one thing so i've never i've never had a lot of great success with land race stuff personally i've been i feel like we're spoiled a little bit by the modern hybrids because back when that stuff like kyle was talking about those initial crosses where you take an afghani to a tie when all you had was afghani or tie and like neither one might have grown super well for you and then you hybridized it and that was like the hottest thing of the day it made sense that it, it crushed it and it seemed like it was so much better but people have been doing that for 20 or 30 years now just selecting the best thing two three four times a year and Shout moving it forward moving it forward geez, dude because it took a lot of work to get to that point, you know, to get to what we have today. It's freaking 50 years of cannabis breeding, you know? Yeah, like DJ Short, he just started picking out seeds from like, you know, Mexican, Thai, Afghani, stuff yep. that was imported in his time. And he would breed them, you know, like F1 hybrid style, essentially. And yeah. he, he discovered blueberry almost as like a happy accident of just picking through his favorites of what he had. And it evolved into what it was. I, from my understanding of his story, it wasn't like blueberry and it, just, and it's he was like, oh, I'm going to make a blueberry. Too. It's crazy to think too about, about how that blueberry is the backbone for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other modern varieties. And the same with like NL5 or like OG Kush, like, all these ones that were like staples are all the backbone of everything else that we have. Purple, whether you want to call it, you know, purple Urkel or grape ape or whatever you consider the original purple. That's like another one that's in a ton of stuff. But yeah, like you were talking about with uh, DJ short, the blueberry that showed up in Phylos. I mean, I know everyone's got their feelings about Phylos and I'm also not a big fan of theirs, but when they did a bunch of the searching through what was submitted, like a ton of it was related. I think like at a certain point it was like near 50% was related to blueberry in some way. Yeah. Can you imagine that being the guy that's like, Oh yeah. All, you know, I think it was even more than 50%, but it's like being able to say, yeah, like all modern cannabis, most of it comes from this, this, and this. <laughs> I mean, Neville's also partially responsible, right? Because he sent thousands and thousands of seeds to the U S for years and years from yeah. the high times days. And, um, <sighs> Unfortunately, the green merchant shit went down and that fucked over a lot of people, hydro stores and growers. But it also, you know, proliferated seeds that went further that were not detected and are still kind of the backbone of the genetics of modern times. Like that white rhino you're talking about, the white widow we were talking about, a lot of that stuff uh, sometimes gets renamed and uh, crossed into these new things or a phenotype of it. Like OG Kush, to my knowledge, is from like a strain called Emerald Triangle, which th that lineage of that is not disclosed across to a hindu kush from sensi seed bank and the hindu kush hermied onto the emerald triangle and that became the og kush and i think that it's also uh, another notable strain like a sister plant to that um but i can't think of it right now i i know for a fact that the og kush the og kush cut is sour best shit ever from green Bodhi. That cut that he has, I've grown that out. It's OG Kush, 100%. The SBSE is just OG Kush is what you're saying? Yeah, the sour best shit is OG Kush. It's real OG Kush. Like that real OG, it's like that that really earthy, pungent. It's got some sour in it. It's got that, uh, that like earthy funk. 
It's a nice plant. So I have a I have some contributions to this conversation with regards to land race. Um, for one thing, I wanted to say that uh, I have a I mean, there's there's a lot. Of, we already kind of touched on it, but I'm very excited about the breeding aspect. Dr. Coco also mentioned it as well. Um, you know, obviously, well, for a lot, for a lot of people who don't know, with a lot of plants that we domesticate. We make a bunch of selections for things that we want, but there's a lot of things that we don't select for, especially, you know, two, four, six millennia ago that we weren't really aware of. Um, and a lot of those things are things to do with like pest resistance or environmental um, resilience in any number of ways, like from heat or humidity or, or that kind of a thing or, or, or um, solar radiation. So, I think that land races, I know that land races have a, a part to play there, but another thing that I think doesn't get talked about a lot, and because I'm the, I'm the resident pest specialist, I just have to say it, right? Because these places where people have been sourcing land races um, or, or even just like feral populations, you know, or, and, and these sorts of un, uncultivated populations they uh they can also be a source for like pests right and um i actually have two videos on my channel that go over that with uh, the hemp phytoplasma which i haven't talked about in a long while but um it's this little bacteria it gets into it's there are different kinds of phytoplasma but basically when they get into plants they can cause all kinds of like sort of wonky effects in their physiology like making them branch heavily like out of one node what we call sort of witch's brooming when there's a bunch of like leaf and branch um, production that kind of doesn't make sense, like a very bushy, like in one section and then not very, and then lanky in another. Um, and this is a lot of this is caused by like hormonal changes manipulated by the bacteria. And so there's at least there's several examples of it in various parts of the USA uh, um, affecting cannabis actually. Um, but also in places like Iran and uh, India and China as well. Um, and so I guess I just feel like not only is there the potential, like we've done it with many other plants, for us to bring problems from cultivated areas, which are a super concentration of all kinds of influences to these sources, but also those sources can be a, um, a source not only for good genetic stock, for various benefits, but also potentially, you know, hazardous things. And I, I, I'm afraid that not a lot of people take that biosecurity very seriously. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious to see more sort of conservation with regards to that. If we're able to secure that as a community, um, I think that would go a, a long way to, to being preservative, but also sort of legitimizing cannabis in a way that not saying that it needs anything more than it already has, but um, it will definitely make things a little bit more serious, I think, um, if that makes sense. Having grown seeds from all over the world now at this point, I have noticed that some of them do come, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, even when I pop it in like a sterile paper, paper towel, they certain ones just get attacked by mold that maybe it came with from the plant, maybe in the seed, maybe it was on the coat of the seed, but I've noticed that. So it definitely can happen, whether it was from Humboldt or from Afghanistan, it could come from anywhere. Essentially it could come from somebody's grow room indoor where they had PM or something, you know, like there's 
a lot of options and it is good to be diligent and aware that it's possible to get pathogen from seed. Although I think many would feel that it's a little bit safer. It's still one of the options and people yeah. also bring in clone, like you're saying, um, whether it's hemp or whether it's cannabis and that's crossing now with more legality or <laughs> illegitimately across borders, uh, people are sending clones and things like hoplite and viroid and other pathogens are going to be spread. The one that I mentioned was the notable uh, cousin or sister. It's a sister plant. It's triangle kush. Triangle kush or TK came from the same Hermie. It was a Hindu kush that Hermied onto triangle, um, emerald triangle. So that was what I was forgetting earlier. So interesting. I think no, I Matthew, just want to. I wanted to respond to Matthew's point. Um, it certainly, you know, any new population can be a source of of pests, right? Um, novel pests and pathogens that you may not be prepared to deal with. But I think that land race genetics, you know, often provides sort of some of the genetic resistance, if there is any in a population, um, to those pests. Typically, for a lot of crops, at least, um, you know, modern varieties are fairly weak in terms of resistance. They depend on a lot of sort of, you know, chemicals basically to, to survive, um, to do a lot of their, their pest defense for them. Um, and oftentimes when we run into sort of a, a, a novel pest or fungus bacteria or something, um, we'll look for resistant genetics in the sort of more genetically diverse land race populations. Oh, of course. But imagine if uh, we had, if we had, imagine if we sourced from somebody or for some area, um, you know, because like many people are want to do apparently to take a nice trip out to Afghanistan or somewhere <laughs> else, and uh, you know they bring something back, and you know our poor, like you mentioned, our poor domesticated plants that do rely on our um, integrity to like keep them, you know, yeah. uh, functioning really well. Like that can be a that can. I don't know the 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 chestnut blight scenario. Although it does not indicative all situations, it just gives me some like, you know, when I when I first learned about that and what I've learned about that since then, I don't know. It's just uh, <laughs> one one small introduction can be really really hazardous, and uh, it's created a lot of things. Can I also just push back a <laughs> little me, bit and least. say, since the Silk Road era, cannabis seed has been openly carried traveled, traded, and brought from country to country, whether it was people coming from Spain using hemp to, you know, grow stuff for the ropes and things like that. And then using that here in the US, we have a long history. As early as we got here, we were using hemp and presumably also cannabis, whether they knew it or not, because the testing didn't necessarily exist back then. Um, I, there's like reports of sweet hemp that was more for smoking and things like that. So I think that if it's been around for so long, there's always a potential chance that a new pathogen will come about, but um, I think that it's it's worthy of having a healthy level of fear, I guess, but I wouldn't let it deter people from potentially, I guess, sourcing things, but having it in the back of your mind at least and, and maybe quarantining or growing things in separate pots or flower beds and until you can verify that it's a clean genetic source. Well, damn, here in New York, start. we could get something from California with Hoploid, uh, was at uh, HPL. Like, we didn't have, I don't, well, I don't know. I don't think we had it here on the East Coast until we got, we might not even have it. I don't know, but we're going to get it. And it's all because of you guys in California. Screw you guys. 
I wonder if it even really is going to around for a while, you know, a long while. Yeah, I know. I'm just I'm just messing. But, but you know, that's true. I wanted to uh, shout out some dude named. Uh, let me get it right here. Kojo Jids. He was saying how he apparently he's in Ghana, and I think I told you guys my Ghana seed story. But the varieties that are considered land land race, where he's in Ghana, rather seem to veg long and flip almost like autoflowers, flowers, but any imported genetics will flower instantly under the natural 12 and 12. And that's like what I experienced. I put that, I had, my buddy went to Ghana because his wife was from Ghana and he went and go visited the family over there and he brought me back seeds. And damn it, I didn't know what I had at the time, but when I planted those inside and gave him even a week of veg, those plants hit the ceiling plus and it's kind of like makes sense that um, if it's 12 and 12 all the time, if a plant is going to get any kind of strength, uh, length, it would veg under 12 and 12 for a while, you know, and then flip the flower. So that I exactly thought was really 12 interesting. 12 and 12 all comment. the time in the equator. Right, but it's close, right? It's Or it is exactly 12 and 12, right? Yeah. No, it's not exactly it's 12 and 12. really it's close. When all year, no, round, it still right? varies. The sun still travels and does a sort of a, a arc across the sky, so it will. The mm. pattern of day length changes different when you get in between the tropics, but um, no, the, the shortest day length is actually on the, the summer solstice or on the winter um solstice for, for equatorial people, they're the same, right? Um, but what is it like 11 and a half? Like, yeah, it's not like we have in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly on the equator how much it sort of varies from that mean during the, the course of the year, but it's not exactly 12-12. Okay. In any case, yeah, but it would reason that if it was if it was close to, if it didn't have a veg, quote, veg stage, it would have to grow somewhat uh, in under uh, less hours of light to support you Tao. when it wanted to, you know, Google Google's on your side, at least how uh, yeah, I said equator day length, I'm, and it says, yeah. although the day length remains 12 hours in all seasons, you're both kind of right in this. It says, <laughs> uh, depending on the elevation during the seasons in the winter, daytime may last shorter than 12 hours during the summer. It may last longer than 12 hours. So yeah. Your elevation also matters, and there's a potential that it's going to be a little bit longer or shorter. But I don't see an actual I'm looking line. At like Hawaii that is like it's only going to change by like 16 minutes. So yeah, I, okay. Yeah, there's, there is a change though. I I got it. Hawaii is a little bit more extreme. A lot of people said like DJ Short actually he said it's 11:13 all year, and then when I looked it up, it was not exactly that, but it's closer to that than a lot of places would be. And uh, it's interesting to note at least what it is versus some of the other places that many of us live and grow, because the equator is definitely a lot different. Steve's got a lot of uh, land on the equator in Colombia where he says stuff, even though it's 12-12, if you start it from seed, won't go straight into flower. It edges for a little bit and then it flowers. And he said stuff finishes a lot quicker there because he thinks it's the intensity of the light. Um, but I don't know. I'd love to go down there. He's saying if you send him 100 seeds for his million seed search, you can come and see the living library, which uh, I'm tempted. But at the same time, I'm also like, hmm, is it worth it? I don't know. The, uh, the risk involved on a few fronts. What do you think, Tao? Would you do it 
Are you going to reach out to Breeder Steve? I know that we've got a connection with him. Eagle Gardens here in the chat has interviewed him a few times. So he's a real yeah, person. I actually, so <laughs> I got his phone number. Uh, I would go down there. That'd be kind of cool. I have he seems like a cool a dude. Pack of seeds that I was going to mail to him. And I'm like, I'm not mailing it to Columbia. Then I got his Canada address. And I, I still have them here. I haven't mailed them out yet, though. I don't know. I got nervous for a second, like when during when I was going to mail them out. But uh, yeah, I would go down there. Like I would go out in there empty pocketed and come home empty pocketed. But I would definitely, I like I said, after watching Locked Up Abroad a few times, I'm not. I don't have any real desire to go traveling the globe so much. I kind of love America, and uh, but I would definitely go to the Netherlands. Uh, you know, as far as out of country, and of course, I'd visit Canada, and I have been into Mexico. So, uh, but yeah, I would definitely go. Why not? I mean, I, I'm not planning to leave the U.S. for the next several years. I'm staying right fucking here for a while. But I do, I did enjoy traveling internationally before things get a little bit crazy, and uh, I do see the value in it. Cultures, you learn so much, you meet new people, uh, you get to see things that you wouldn't see otherwise. So it's worth traveling. I just, for my own personal reasons, the next, uh, I don't know, maybe decade, I'm staying in America. Same. But with that said, yeah. I, I do, I, I wish that it would be like, you could just go like next door and be in fucking Columbia, right? And see his living library. At, like, I don't know. He says he has like 10 different sites, like hectares of plants. And he's like a personal air, a, a little passenger pilot plane guy. He has like a Cessna or something, so you can fly over like this hectares of cannabis and just see like thousands of plants. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, seems like a dream come true in some extent. What weird stuff. I want to stop. He, uh, Brandon, you're off mute there, but uh, he also does like aquaponics even at that scale, which is crazy. I guess he has like giant. They're not like crocodiles, but some sort of uh, reptiles Cayman. in there. Caimans? Is that what they were? Caimans, yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, He's a cool dude. I think he is credited actually as the first guy for ever writing the term aquaponics on the internet. Uh, and that's from Steve at Potentponics, who's like quite the aquaponics aficionado. He has like hundreds of episodes of uh, talking about ex exclusively aquaponic cannabis. So shout out. And to you him. know, he, he recently uh, yeah went on board with uh, Rita Steve. He's working with him or for him in uh, Thailand, which is totally cool. It's good to hear. He does a lot of work all around the world. He's had some work in Africa. He's got stuff in Oklahoma. Talking about Steve Reisner now of Potent Ponics, but Steve, uh, Breeder Steve is also all over the world. So shout out to those guys. Even Chip Brandon right here is all over the world. Hawaii, Chicago, Oklahoma, California. He's got a little bit of everything. And Dr. MJ too, consultant. Uh, I know Spartan's more in uh, Michigan mainly, but you deal with people all over the world as all of us do being on podcasts. I'm down into Illinois every once in a while. So that's where I was before. <laughs> that was my remote location was Illinois. So I weren't they pretty rough on cannabis for a while? Like if you yeah, they're there. not the greatest, man. They're not the greatest. They're, Illinois, you can do some work, man. I'm I'm looking at you. Come on now. They're better now. We're kind of like neighbors and come on, we kind of set a decent example of how to set things up straight. What are you guys doing? Well, when I lived in Illinois, it like it was very illegal. And now at least they're like have a program. They have medical ish. I remember at the beginning, they were trying to propose a police officer had to come over to your house to check out your grow spot. I think they got shot down, but that just shows you sort of the uh, yeah. antics that were going on in that area and, and how their feelings are. Well, they, I don't like the home grow. That's what I'm talking about. It like was bad. It terrible. was bad. The uh, the head of normal, a lady out there, 
they did like this lotto and people, it was like, I think you had to have like a hundred thousand dollars non-refundable. And she ended up with like a majority of the licenses her and then the people that she knew. And so I think the court intervened and like shut the whole program down for a while. Chicago was bad. It was just so, so corrupt out there. We've got some of that in California right here in Oceanside. They gave four out of five. They only were going to give out five permits to grow. And four out of five were given to a group called the Milanos who grow all the roses for the Rose Bowl. They were Sounds like a conspiracy. Yep. Well, they were clever. They submitted under their like daughter's husband's last name for a couple of the permits. So it didn't look like it was coming from them, even though all of the property was like owned by the same person. Wow. The best part of that, it got exposed by journalists. So here's the thing. If you are a journalist out there who does investigative work like that, you expose that shit and hopefully like it happened in Illinois. And all of the people who had those non-refundable deposits they only accepted five. Well, like 12 applied. So that means like seven of them lost thousands of dollars on these applications. Once that came out, people were like, no, fuck that. That's messed up. This is clearly a monopoly situation. You guys have, you know, buddy, buddy situation going on with the government and Oceanside. And they said, all right, well, instead of only five getting it, all 12 of you will get it if you follow the guideline. So something good came of it. So I do appreciate that there are investigative journalists out there who expose that kind of stuff to make people aware and upset have a little bit of uproar talk to your council people and say hey this is wrong you know all these people shouldn't just have their money stolen from them let them run a business if they want to do it legally those other five should have paid back the other seven hundred thousand too that's what i would if i was a judge or crack control of that situation i would be like you guys can stay open but you got to pay them back all their licensing fees corruption is bad all over the world man it happens, but uh, it's just a reason for us to come together as people. It's all just people at the end of the day, politicians, lobbyists. It's really all just people. So we have to organize ourselves and be aware of this stuff and try and counteract it, like spreading the information on shows like this so you can become aware of what might be happening in your state, city, country and advocate for better law for yourself, for your neighbors, for your friends and your family. Because I think most of us realize at this point, cannabis is uh, overall benefit to society. It's not harming many if any people on its own um maybe there's peripheral things that might happen but i think many of us uh are actively doing it spartan's doing it brandon's doing it all of us by doing the show in some way um we're a little bit outlaws in the u.s being federally illegal still and they've gotten rid of the coal memo or whatever so technically they could raid fucking anybody at any any point (laughs) like it's still federally illegal so there's a lot of work that's left to be done I definitely advocate for decriminalizing. I posted about that on my story today. I grew up listening to Legalize It by Peter Tosh, and somebody posted a goat eating cannabis. And he has a line that says, goats love to play with it. And then like the next line is like, legalize it. I wrote a little asterisk or star or whatever. It said, decriminalize it. And that's how I feel. Like Legalization uh, has, comes with a lot of issues. I think the first priority for many of us could be decriminalization comes with a lot of benefits for a lot of people. Decriminalization, I just want to push back a little bit on that because it's often purported as sort of a panacea. It usually doesn't touch the supply side. When we talk about decriminalization for drugs, it's usually just talking about users, not the suppliers, not the people that are, in this case, the growers. Um, so, you know, the if you want to make it legal, you often have to regulate it. Um, and 
decriminalizing something like decriminalizing heroin offenses, for example. And when somebody shows up and they're a heroin addict, you take them to treatment instead of taking them to jail. Um, but we're still hunting down and arresting heroin dealers and distributors. Right. Um, but that's usually the distinction between a regulated market and a decriminalization. Decriminalization only focuses on users. It doesn't focus on suppliers, the source. Um, and the full weight of the law is usually thrown down on the suppliers still, where under decriminalization regimes, we take a much easier approach to the users who are often considered victims of the suppliers, which, you know, as a grower, <laughs> like that's not the way I want cannabis to be uh, legalized. I just think for the states that are still red, so to speak, or, or anti-cannabis that people are locked up, like we did the last prisoner project thing. The goal for those people, the people that are still yeah. locked up is to decriminalize, expunge, get those records off the book. The suppliers are going to make their money in the time when it happens. Many of them are still gray, black, or unregulated market, whatever you want to call it, operating, whether it's in California or in states that they don't have legal uh, frameworks. So when it does get legalized, we see uh, generally softer sentencing or even no, um, like, even if you're unpermitted growing cannabis out here in California, they usually just cut down your crop or they take shit away, um, but they don't throw you in jail anymore. It still sucks, but it's a different set of circumstances. Uh, right. That's. But I, I do agree with you that it's important to follow up with a framework of, hey, let's advocate for home grow. Let's advocate for caregiver rights. Let's advocate for patient rights and things like that and uh, access right. too. Because some of these people that are in remote areas that aren't going to be right next to the dispensary might have to grow their own or might have to have a friend grow it for them. So all these things are important to continue to push and uh, remind people to not let those things be left off the ballot. Because if you don't specifically have it in writing in black and white on paper, it doesn't count. It's not part of the law. It has to be included. Otherwise, you're just essentially in the same spot that we were before any of these uh, propositions or laws are put into place. We've only got about a few minutes left until Spartan Grown has to get running here. I'm curious if uh, Spartan, because normally we used to give you a little bit of time uh, and give some updates on the Michigan scene and how things are going over there. And I'm curious if there has been any, any change recently that we haven't heard about, or if there's anything that's on your mind that you uh, haven't touched on yet. Spartan's talking tomorrow. Tuesday, Tuesday, man. It's Tuesday. Yep. Oh, Tuesday. Tuesday. I'm going to be up at the state capitol. I'll be at the state capitol and um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure when I'm speaking. I'll just have to show up and find out. But um, the event is from noon till 5 p.m. Eastern time at in Lansing at the state capitol. And it's the Freedom Rally and or Harvest Freedom Rally. I'm not exactly sure what they're calling it. But it's more of hopefully an education event and less of a protest and more of uh, an education event where hopefully lawmakers will be comfortable enough to, there's going to be some lawmakers speaking too, but other lawmakers will be comfortable enough to come out or maybe their staff come out to the different booths that will be set up for, with uh, different people just getting educated on some stuff. Um and what I've like I've said before on other shows is the overall theme kind of kind of is just like we can all you know be part of it. We, there's there's room for everybody, and uh, there's no reason to fight amongst ourselves and spend money on lobby groups to try to edge out other people when there is absolutely room and a reason for 
every portion of the systems that we have right now in Michigan, be that a patient or a caregiver or a recreational user or a license holder, we need them all. And uh, there's absolutely room for it. So hopefully that's the message that I can get across. Um, I'm going to kind of shoot from the hip just because I, I know I won't be the first speaker or not likely. So I don't want to repeat a bunch of stuff. I want to maximize the education that can be had at that time. So uh, I want to wait to see what everybody says before me and then just adjust. Uh, I'm sure I can, I can fill five minutes. Shit, talking about weed. We can fill two hours every fucking week, right? I should be able to do five minutes. Well, especially when you're speaking from the heart and with lots of knowledge, experience, and you know, rational sound thought that you've it's not like it's your first or second time thinking about it this is something that you've done as a profession you've lived it you've helped people uh on the first-hand experience level so you can give experiences to people and and share that knowledge that you've gained with people that have none they're coming at it from ground zero there's still a lot of doctors out there who've never worked with cannabis there's still yeah. a lot of parents uh teachers all those other people who might have one perception an old perception that is more akin to like the reefer madness days and misinformation. So even if you're just clarifying and giving what we feel like is basic, uh, whatever, but if like you're saying, it's not repeated, it's education and hopefully it'll get to the ears that need to hear it. And I'm really thankful for you and others like yourself who are out there doing it firsthand. And uh, I'm very thankful that you're on this panel and uh, you can stand as an, as an example, because I kind of remember that this was coming up, but just to, <laughs> subliminally thought of it i was like you know what spartan hasn't talked about this for a little while and then tao reminded me he's got this coming up but it is an exciting time an important time yeah and i appreciate you letting me use the platform just to try to rally the troops it's 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 a tough call on a tuesday to get everybody up you know out to the capitol because usually people are at work or whatever so i but i don't know man i i feel like there's a lot of steam behind this thing the weasters the michigan weasters on Instagram there. They've really spearheaded the effort and done a really, really good job. I've seen news articles on it. Uh, so I'm sure press will be there. And uh, so I'm really excited about it, honestly. Um, but I'm trying to be just chill about it and not get too excited. And just like you said, speak from the heart. That's why I started to do the thing, writing things down and stuff. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to even read shit when I'm out there. I'll be fucking nervous. So I might as well just go up there and just speak. <laughs> you know what I do, Spartan? I just write down some points, some like stories that I wanted to sell or some like points that I might want to make or things that you might have like, you know, stuff to riff on. Think through five or six, you know, different topics that you could riff on for a while. And then as you're listening to other people, you could be like, oh, they've kind of already covered this and kind of cross it off because there's this moment <laughs> when you get up in front of a large audience where the, the entire contents of your brain will empty out empty. through the sole yeah. of your shoe. And you'll just be standing there, like sort of looking at everybody and be like, like okay, yeah, I like cannabis. I mean, I'm not saying this is like your lack of preparation. So this is just what happens. Um, so that's what I would do if I was going to be there. I'd have yeah, like, maybe, like maybe something, some notes just with some like bullet something. points. Yeah, right. like five or six bullet points on my phone as a note. Just, yeah, uh, they give you some ideas so you can just glance and be like, uh, okay yeah this is what i'm gonna talk about you know like, yeah anyway. perfect I'll so do you're that. gonna do awesome dude i i'm i'm really happy that you're doing that and i hope a bunch of people come out and see you one last vote of confidence before final thought and shout out is even if you say 60 percent or 80 percent of what you wanted to say you'll probably get off and say oh damn if I, only i would have said that extra 20 or oh, 40 or sure. whatever say but no one else is going to fucking notice that you didn't say that 20 percent. they're going to hang on the words that you said 
that came through that microphone that were projected to that loudspeaker out to that crowd on that day. And that's what matters. And I'm, like I said, just, uh, I'm rooting for you and it's, it's super crucial that you do these types of things and that others are, uh, inspired and noticed that this is, it matters. It, it makes a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank Thank you, Jack. And yeah, and that's kind of, uh, I think a lot of the motivation for me too, is to just, um, show people that it's kind of safe to, to come out of the shadows and, and to speak up uh, we're a legal state now but and like you said we still have the federal thing looming over us but i mean with the biden announcement take it how you want to take it it's still a good sign it's still a good sign that they're not likely to say that one day and then turn around the next day and start enforcing some bullshit so i mean it wouldn't be surprising if it did but i'm just saying it's not likely probably so um i'm encouraged by that and uh that's making me be a little bit more bold and get out there so hopefully that will encourage a few others to do it and uh just start a tidal wave right get some change but where yeah, can anyways, people find you and anyways, anyways, yeah, anyways i'm spartan grown i'm about i'm heading over to the michigan bros grow show next here coming up at 9 p.m eastern time otherwise you can find me on instagram at spartan grown or you can just shoot me an email spartan at gmail.com Otherwise, love you guys. We'll see you next week. And uh, I'm out. Cheers, guys. Keep growing. Have a great one, Spartan. Thank you. Grow love, Spartan. Good luck. I think Brandon might Later. have some thoughts. I saw Last Prisoner Project actually posted about the Biden announcement. And again, we don't typically get super political, but this is cannabis related. Biden said that he was going to pardon and release all federal cannabis possession people. And uh, from what I'm understanding, some people said it is as few as zero or as many as seven people but it's not very many but it is expunging some of those records which is a good start but it's oh, no, not it's what... going to affect a lot of people if they expunge records jack i yeah. mean after the fact because it allows them also to if they were felons for that now they can vote again right yeah they can do all sorts of things again oh, they can run cannabis businesses again in yeah a lot of which states. they were excluded from in a lot of states california yeah, being one so this is a big deal and this is the kind of thing that we were absolutely i, I thought sort of rallying for i figured that you know, our fundraiser kind of worked. Like <laughs> somebody heard it's, like, it's okay, a win. It's a win, but it wasn't, I think, what everybody thought necessarily. Like um the people that uh produced no, most it. people are in jail for state offenses, not for federal offenses. That's correct. And also a lot of people that are in for like uh conspiracy, for example, or um uh, trafficking are still in for that. So possession is the thing and like i mentioned earlier right decriminalization is a win so i, I will take the wins where we can get them and like spartan said it's more of a, a sign that at least in this administration it's not super likely that it's going to turn around and go ultra aggressive and start shutting down like legal pot shops and things like that like it's uh i think more likely that they're going to live like a coal memorandum even if it doesn't exist because they want to respect the state's rights for more than just the cannabis reason it kind of is foundational on how our country was set up like i guess brandon how do you feel about this as somebody who has served time for cannabis and then also is operating in multiple states and um at larger scales i mean i see a lot of people posting about and i just i just don't think there's it's like i think it's more just like uh trying to save face than anything because the way that i look at it how many people go to federal prison for cannabis possession i've i mean like usually people get if you're gonna get a, if you're gonna have be in possession of enough 
cannabis that it's a federal offense, then you're talking about weight. And then you're going to get something like, uh, you know, distribution or possession with intent. Or, or yeah, things like that. And it's not, it's just like, you know, I was in, uh, I was in a prison, uh, serving a prison term in California for making concentrate when it became legal to do so. And it's not, but it didn't get, there wasn't one, there wasn't retroactive sentencing. And then two, it wasn't, even if there was retroactive sentencing, charges like that aren't included. You know what I mean? So if it was inclusive. In your it case, it was because broad, like hydrocarbons, yeah, right? Then, yeah. The use of well, a yeah. hydrocarbon to produce it versus like if you would have made like ice water hash or dry sift, I think maybe it you would have still been, it could, they could have still charged me and they would have charged me with the same regardless of the, the manufacturing process. Just that it was manu- okay. Manufacturing a concentrate is different than just. Yeah. Because I have concentrate in any type of concentrate, whether it's hash or anything like that they could have done the same thing, you know, it's, so it's not limit. They're not limited in their, their ability to char- charge you with something, you know? And that was all state crimes, correct, Brandon? State What's that? Law. And those are all state. Yeah. But yeah. like, if you were doing something federal, which means you're probably having to be crossing state lines, something like that. Or in a federal or, territory or in, I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, like a national park. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, and, and, and so it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that often that, that uh federal you know cannabis crimes and if they are they're usually not just for possession so it's almost like saying hey we're going to release all these these people from federal prison it's like yeah well how many are there are there even really people that are in you know and so then you have to go and look and and find out and then start doing research on whether or not because to me it just sounds like a Right. Well, like I said, Jack, the majority of people that are going to help by this aren't currently in prison. They have records and those records are going to get expunged. And because of their they're going to get a a pardon for that, they'll be able to to have their rights restored that were taken away from them. So remember, you know, when you go up against the criminal justice system, it's more than often just your sort of physical freedom that they take away, take away a lot of your other rights and freedoms to do other things. So. Like having once you're a felon record is still a big deal for a lot of people that have it on there. Yeah. Having a felony basically means like while you're in prison, that's why they can pay you essentially like a slave labor. It's crazy. Like it's how you, they're no longer even considered a citizen to some extent because you've committed a certain type of crime. You're not considered what the rest of the citizenship. My and, question is if they realize that cannabis isn't an evil thing and those who possess it should be, those who were distributing it uh, and that's their only charge should be released as well. You know what I'm saying? It, it begins to become, are they just doing this over tax collection essentially because they want yeah. only legal people to operate and they don't want any gray unregulated or black market, whatever you want to call it. Well, this, people they were to most likely arrested. Be, well, who knows? You're right. But those who were arrested before it was legalized, whatever, they should let anyone who it was just a cannabis charge. They should be set free in my opinion. But like I was saying on a different thing, when I was when I was a little bit younger than I'm not, I mean, I'm very young right now, but when I was even younger, I used to think, yeah, those greedy bastards deserve to go to jail, but they don't, you know, they really don't. Even if their goal was money, it's a freaking plant. They shouldn't be jailing people over a plant, you know? Well, they could have been selling fentanyl or they could have been selling something that is killing people at a higher rate and is more dangerous and isn't providing lots of spiritual like kyle was talking about experiences or uh fun just 
uplifting, happy, giggly experiences like we were reading about. Some of those those people hasn't really done much good either, though. No, I agree. I think that I'm more on the side of we should just probably get those people treatment who need it. And the uh, distribution aspect, essentially, not that I'm like a legalize all drugs type of person, but I do see from the libertarian perspective that if and when that does happen, it provides a level of regulation so that people can get clean things versus things that are potentially tainted or spiked that yeah, cause more death. Safer. I mean, we and learned like, that same lesson about trying to prohibit alcohol. It just makes alcohol more dangerous. It doesn't sort of make alcohol go away. Yeah. And that, that's the same effect it's had on all drugs. Prohibition just makes whatever you prohibit more dangerous, not less dangerous. And like the whole thing is like, if they made heroin it, like legal today, would how many people would go and do it? I wouldn't personally, but some people maybe would be inspired to do it. But it's one of those well, things. You can't that... just make it legal like they made cannabis legal. You can't just make it legal like, okay, it's legal. Go do it now. <laughs> you got to make it legal with like a, a heavy education message of like, uh, okay, this is really still very, very bad for you and dangerous. And, you, you know, these are all the reasons that you shouldn't use it. But, but Canada, they have centers. That making it strictly illegal it is making it actually harder to police and leading to all sorts of other kinds of crime. Um, leading to all sorts of violence in our society. And so we don't want that anymore. I mean, so the arguments about prohibition, I mean, that's where all the prohibitionists go is like, well, you don't want heroin legal, do you? And it's like, well, I want it to be regulated. And right now it's not regulated. The funny thing is even big tobacco right now, because California is banning flavors, you see everywhere and it's it's pretty vague. They don't even like, uh, they just say the prop. I think it's like prop 29 is like banning uh, flavored in tobacco or something. I could be wrong on that. So don't hold me to it. But it says prohibition underlined, never all caps works <laughs> coming from big tobacco, which I just thought was hilarious. It's like prohibition never works. And it's coming from big tobacco. Who's like prohibition been pretty works. legal for a long time. Well, I mean, we know this. There's a whole body of scholarship devoted to this. This isn't, this isn't gray area. I mean, we know prohibition doesn't work for its stated goals. It does some other things. And we're able to take advantage of some of those other things. That's why, for a lot of reasons, we probably continue to do prohibition, um, even though we've known for literally decades and decades that it, it does not do what it was designed to do, which is make drugs less dangerous. Um, I think Canada has done a good job with like, they have areas for people if they are addicted to certain drugs they can go to safe spots where they have like narcan and things like that if you're going to be used like an opiate and potentially overdose and die well they have people there that might save your life and they do save thousands of lives every year apparently um, which is kind of a interesting but see that's uh, still the decriminalization side and you still have drug you know cartels like taking over entire states in northern Mexico um, that are funded by drug users in Canada that aren't being prosecuted, that are being able to use these things. That's the juxtaposition that you get in one of these sort of decriminalization Mm. where you stop criminalizing the the users and you keep the supply wholly illegal. I mean, it's the illegal supply is what leads to violence. That's what ended up undoing alcohol prohibition is because alcohol started being controlled by criminal gangs that were violent, that were buying out the police and just destabilizing all of society. I mean, that's happening in the war on drugs and in drug prohibition too. It's just happening in other countries. Yeah, it's in Mexico, right? Just south of the border where we live here. And uh, it's kind of scary when you see some of the videos that come out of there because just yeah. like alcohol prohibition, they're better armed than the military and the police and they're paying off the military and police in many yeah. circumstances. And so it and does we're creating to that dystopic by our future. policies. And it, it's like totally, I mean, living in, in the drug war in Northern Mexico is, is hell. 
I'll say one positive note before we get running. Brian, 420 PM, who's an avid listener of the show and awesome data analyst. Follow him on Instagram. He's really uh, got lots of cool posts over there. But he says, if Missouri passes personal use, grow permit will be $50 for three years. Shout out to that. If you're in Missouri, maybe look into that because I think that's a pretty damn fair law. That's cheaper than California, to my knowledge. And ours is every year that we have to re-up for the, if you're a medical grower. Uh, although you can grow six if you're over the age of 18 or 21. I'm pretty sure it's 21. Uh, 18 for medical, but very cool, Brian. Thank you for sharing that information. And with that being said, I'm going to kick it to Dr. MJ for his final thoughts and shout out. This was interesting. I get kind of riled up around some topics, but I had fun for the most part today. Um, I enjoyed starting off talking about some of like our nostalgic strains and stuff like that. Um, I'll always get kind of fired up about prohibition stuff. But anyways, I'm Dr. MJ Coco. I am from uh, CocoForCannabis.com. And check us out there. Check me out on my Instagram at Dr. MJ Coco on YouTube, Dr. MJ Coco. I've been really working hard on my latest YouTube video. It's still like several days away, but I'm excited about it. And I'm probably, I mean, the rumor is I'm going to go on camera for this video. So you guys can all look forward to actually getting to see me for once. Um, yeah, and then I'll probably hell after that. I might as well start going on camera here too. But anyways, guys, I'll, I'll shut up. Dr. MJ Coco, girl love everyone. Thanks, Doc. Looking forward to that. Even though I've seen you in person, I think it'll be cool for the people to get that experience. People will uh, kind of freak out when it happens. And it, it's nice to put a, a face to the name and the voice. And uh, I think it'll be a good experience for a lot of the people. You've helped so many of them over the years. So um, looking forward to that. And uh Cheers to you and your production. I, I always appreciate your YouTube videos. So another great YouTuber on the panel is Matthew Gates. And uh, final thoughts and shout outs from you. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates, um, IPM specialist. If you want a bunch of free, good information about uh, pests and plant health, you can check me out at Zenthanol, my YouTube channel. You can also check me out on my Patreon. To subscribe for at least $1 a month, you get access to my Discord, where over 100 people who are also looking to learn about IPM and pests and that kind of a thing can also corroborate. And of course, you can also reach out to me at zenthanol.com for professional inquiries. Thank you again for joining. And next, Brandon Rust. Hey, what's going on? Uh, thanks for having me. As always, it's great to be here with the rest of the panel um if you guys are just uh if you've been here i appreciate all the people that have been here tuning in uh you can check me out on instagram at russ.brandon uh i am having a giveaway so you can check that all out on the page and you can also check out bokashiearthworks.com for all your fertilizer microbe and amendment needs great stuff next up we've got noah the grower yeah uh, I'm Noah DeGroa. You can uh, check me out there on Instagram and uh, had some uh, family stuff going on, but I'll be, be here next week and uh, had a great time and uh, see everybody next week. Looking forward to it. And uh, I didn't share any specifics, but when you were gone, the people were uh, just sending lots of love and good vibes to you. So uh, we're happy to have you back, even if it was just for a little bit. And uh, I know sometimes you, you just hang back and listen to the chat, but I know for yourself, being back on the panel has got to feel good again. And we're happy to have you. So very thankful that you're back and things are going in the right direction. So uh, with you. that said, last and certainly not least, the American one. Well, second to last. And yeah, shout out to you, Jack. Shout out 
Noah the Grower, great to see you back. And shout out to A.G. Akers in his absence. Uh, he's just uh, an inspiration to see him unfold. And, and then in messing with them barrel hemp fields, it's totally cool. I'm glad he shares that with the world. And uh, yeah, shout out to everyone in chat. I'm the American one on the YouTube, the American one underscore with underscore Akeens on IG. Most of you know me already. But if you uh, want to get in touch, that's a good spot. And yeah, growers love everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much, Tao. And uh, I guess, yeah, technically I am last, the host, but I, I won't call myself that. I guess you can find me at Jack Greenstock on Cannabis. Jack underscore Greenstock is my backup account on Instagram. You can also find me on Instagram at Jack Greenstock and then Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. If you want a copy of the book, 50 Strains of Green, go to 50strains.com. 50 Strains of Purple, I'm like over 40 strains in to the writing. So that should be finished uh, hopefully by the top of the week or end of the month. I don't know. It's uh, coming to a wrap up here shortly. So I'll be doing a pre-order for that in the coming month or so. So you have that to look forward to on 50strains.com as well. So thank you, everybody. This was a fun one. I uh, always enjoy the panels chat. I appreciate the, uh, you know, clarity of perspectives, uh, Doc. Oftentimes, I'll say something just like I have a little bit of a thought on it. And then I think about it more and more over time. And I'll look back at some of these episodes and re-listen. And I'm like, I actually agree more with Doc on this than myself. <laughs> And I'm wondering, like, was I playing devil's advocate at the time? Did I actually believe that as my opinion evolved? But um, yeah, definitely appreciate your perspective. Grow love, Jack. Absolutely. But uh, Jack Greenstock, signing out. Have a great one, everybody. Grow love, everyone. Thank you.